All coming up. We talk about folk art, small town living, coming yeah. to the big city. That's right. Horror films. Shootings in your front yard. The price of art. Our inaugural uh, interview with uh, with, with uh, Tom Neely, artist and polymath. So stay tuned to find out what the hell that means on the Shaky Town Radio Hour. Town Radio Hours on the air. I'm uh, Gene George. I'm Brody Foster Hubbard. We're here with Tom Neely. He is a comic book artist, illustrator, animator, uh, musician in an <laughs> aspect that we're going to talk about. He's a polymath. That's the, the true definition of a polymath. I've never heard that word. I haven't heard that either. That Renaissance man. Okay. Ah. You're good at many maths. Alright. I have no, I have no really idea where terrible that. at actual math. So. Is I, are we all crappy at math? Yeah. Yeah. I I'm miserable. I'm like retarded. I mean, no offense. I am completely. <laughs> I'm literally like like stupid at math. Yeah. Um. My wife, she handles the bookkeeping. Um. I can do simple arithmetic, but I always manage to mess up like money math. Mm-hmm. I always end up I, in the black I, or I'm, in the red. I'm kind of, yeah. See already. <laughs> I, I'm kind of like uh, I I if calculators weren't around. I would be ridiculous counting on my fingers. Just absolutely useless. I can do money all right. Yeah, money. Money's practical. Money's money's a, a concrete concept to me that you know things come in and things go out. And but you know, long division, nope, no, <laughs> no way. Anyway, we're already sidetracked, <laughs> uh, which is fine. Which is fine. So we're at Tom's house today. Tom and I are our neighbors. We used to be closer in proximity to each other, but we still live in the same community. Tom, originally you're from Paris, Texas. Yes. Um, how long did you grow up there? Uh, until I went to college, I was born and raised there. And then when I was, uh, 18, I moved to, I went to school at the University of Tulsa in Oklahoma. You also ended up teaching in Tulsa, right? Yeah, briefly. I, 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 I majored in art and art education. And after, after school, when I was getting ready to go to grad school, I spent a year teaching at a community college there. And, uh, that was interesting because I was younger than most of my students. (laughs) (laughs) I lived in Tulsa as well for a while. Um, it's it's an interesting place. Yeah, it's very it's an odd mix of um, of like absolute Hicksville and like weirdly cosmopolitan. I mean, like the downtown is like really kind of nice and yeah, yeah. yeah so it's a really place where I, I lived in a trailer park on the outskirts of town, which was the fun was like throwing rocks at the dead cows in the pasture, <laughs> which I think it's, it's all been annexed by the airport. Oh yeah, like that whole area is like blasted wasteland now because the oh. airport just like scooped it all up from eminent domain or something i haven't been there in, since uh 2005 was the last time i was there i think there's an art show at the at my at yeah. the university of tulsa but yeah i haven't been there but, uh, even at that time the, the school had like taken over like vast stretches of neighborhood that that used to be all like small apartments and stuff what's so. up with that that's just like <laughs> it's it's totally like the, the like expanse of everything seems to be it's the sooner mentality i, mean, I guess you so. just reach out and grab it yeah. <laughs> all i know about tulsa is the, the tulsa hardcore scene yeah and really only two hardcore bands i know of uh, brother inferior and nota mm-hmm. but brother inferior was like my favorite band in high yeah the, the big, when i was there the big the big bands in town were uh this one called dead clown that were kind of uh 
don't know, like the alternative kind of punkish kind of weirdo band that were really interesting. And then uh, this band that were a bunch of friends of mine, uh, Jacob Fred Jazz Odyssey, that started off as sort of like a uh, uh, somewhere between like traditional bop and like funk kind of stuff. That, like, but then they're still actually around now, but it's down to like only two of the original members and they're like total free form <laughs> psychedelic jazz like uh more like cecil taylor kind of stuff than than their origins that were more like uh p-funk <laughs> <laughs> i'm curious about paris i don't know nothing about paris Texas. it's the city of lights right uh i think that's actually paris okay. that's the real paris <laughs> we've got an eiffel tower really yeah, yeah it's about on purpose yeah yeah, it's like three stories tall and has a big red cowboy hat on top of it. I like the fact that I thought maybe it's accidental. <laughs> yeah. I just dropped. Yeah. Just well, it was <laughs> actually kind of interesting. It's our second Eiffel Tower. The first one was uh, made of wood and used to stand on uh, in the middle of this uh, exercise track that was by the junior college. And one morning... Uh, it was found toppled over and shattered into pieces Thanks. and tire tracks nearby oh. as if somebody had like lassoed it and, and just Ch- yanked it, it over. Um, so then they, th- a few years later, they rebuilt it out of metal and bolted it to the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, <laughs> so, pavement so, <laughs> in front of the civic center. So was so, there any, anything other than like the most cursory of, 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 uh, of, uh, attachment on the, the original wood one? It's no, just, I think I think people kind of resented it. It was just like standing there in the middle. It was donated by like this artist who apparently tried to donate it to every other Paris in the country, and nobody <laughs> wanted it. But then they took it. That's oh, the, nice. that's the story that I remember. I don't. Nice. Know, it could be a legend, but might, might be not right. But uh, the Maybe second just... one was built by like the local. I think one of the local high schools, uh, like a yeah. welding metal yeah. shop. And uh, and then later they added the cowboy hat that I think was built by the local construction company. But it's pretty awesome. <laughs> There's also the other famous landmark is a uh, a tombstone. There's a huge uh, cemetery out by the high school, and it's um, or where the high school used to be. I think it moved. But uh, there's a tombstone I think from around 1890 that is about 15 feet tall, and the top half of it is a life-size sculpture of Jesus, like, kind of leaning or, like, almost, like, hugging a, the cross, but he's wearing cowboy boots. And so that's, like, one of as, our... As the historical Jesus, obviously, yeah. would be. So it's, like, those, those are, like, the two uh, famous, like, must-see tourist attractions in Paris, Texas, are uh, the Eiffel Tower with the cowboy hat and Jesus with cowboy boots. And ask anybody in town, like... <laughs> About the Jesus cowboy boots, and they'll tell you to get, where to go see it. He's he's a carpenter, dude. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I think with the cowboy boots, it means he's a framer. He's not a finished carpenter. Gene, <laughs> so. you just saw a piece of folk art. Oh, yeah. we had it on the blog, which is uh, at yep. shakytownradio.tumblr.com. It, it's the Alta Sierra, uh, the Alta Sierra Bible Garden in in northern california just outside of grass valley and was up there for a friend's uh, birthday party and um i didn't know you could grow bibles I, well <laughs> i thought you know when i the we stayed at the at the best western there and they they did have free internet access which which, which is better than a lot of places i've stayed but their um homepage when you open up the free internet, internet access has you know local attractions and one was the alta sierra bible garden and i thought my first thought was oh hey <clears throat> 
maybe it's a it's a cool garden where they grow like you know biblical era plants it's like oh maybe there's like myrrh or frankincense or whatever um and i clicked on the link and i'm greeted with these horrible folk art statues i and i, I was trying to think at the at, there's a, the one that caught my eye was um moses with uh with the ten commandments um and i realize now he looks just like um uh, like uh, John Barrymore. <laughs> he looks just like John Barrymore. That's awesome. Um, and I don't know if that's on purpose, but man, oh man, horrible. <laughs> it's It has that, it has that like almost art quality. Yeah. It's like somebody may have had like some kind of like, they, they've taken a semester of like, you know, sculpture or did a lot of paper mache as a child or something. Because it's just like that. But it's it's definitely in the uncanny valley where you know it's not quite right. You could just tell by the looking at it. It's like mm, no, almost. Sometimes that's my favorite kind of art, though. Oh, no, well, that's, that's what uh, totally caught my eye. I, yeah. Otherwise, I would have passed it by. Um, yeah, but but you're right. I think I think there's something appealing about bad art and folk art. Um, this was just like, uh, and and of course it was the usual, and it was the usual like. You know, Bible lessons. It was just a garden. It's just basically, uh, you know, you walk around and there's like uh, little vignettes of Bible lessons. Yeah. You know, so it wasn't even anything cool. It was it was just sort of like, oh, okay. And apparently, incredibly draconian and restrictive rules. There will be no playing in the creek. <laughs> when I was moving out to uh, from Tulsa to San Francisco, I t- took a road trip with my brother to drive my, all my stuff out. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it. I think it's in the Panhandle of Texas. I forget which. I think it's. It would think it was about an hour outside of Amarillo. There's the the largest cross in the Western Hemisphere, Northwestern Hemisphere, or whatever. What hemisphere are we on? Western. Okay. <laughs> and um, uh, it's like I forget how tall it is. It's enormous. You can see it from an hour away as you're driving towards it. And so we had to stop and and see it and. Uh, as we pulled into the little driveway there, there was a trailer next to it and, um, and some statues like around it. And we were greeted by a man who came out and introduced himself as Jim Bible. And, uh, and he then told us all about the cross and how it was built and then took us on a tour of the, the statues that surrounded it, which were like the, all the stations of the cross, like in life size, like very realistic, sculptures and uh and then at the end of it was a uh a tombstone a symbolic tombstone uh that had these two hands reaching out of it holding a uh, dead fetus and it was <laughs> a, a tombstone in in um memory of all aborted children yeah, subtlety yeah i think that's <laughs> that's the mark of good proselytizing is subtlety yeah yeah <laughs> that this 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 didn't give off as as bad a whiff of that, but, it, I, but I wouldn't have been surprised. We did not make that a stop on our, our our whirlwind tour of Northern California. Yeah, but I wouldn't have been surprised if they had something like that hanging out there. What was it like as far as as growing up in Paris, Texas? As um, I, I know you you maintain something from growing up in a small town, and, and that's carried with you throughout your travels and throughout your career. Yeah, I mean, I. I, I I mean, there's, there were, there's a lot of about where I grew up in Paris that I really like. I mean, I, I, I kind of really appreciate that I grew up in a small town and and uh, and had all those the, the the good 
side of that of like you know roaming through the neighborhoods on your bike and getting into trouble and like and my dad was a farmer when I was a uh, when I was really young and going out to the farm and spending time out there was really great and everything and it, it was but I mean there was the other side to it was that uh, there were a lot of things I didn't really care for like you know being probably the only liberal family in in, in the county right. and uh and you know, growing up, kind of a weirdo metalhead who was into art instead of football, and and uh, kind of on the nerdy side, and and uh, yeah, got got beat up and picked on a lot. So that wasn't always fun. And I had long hair in high school, and and you know, got picked on for that. Everybody, you know, calling me fag, or or when I'd be walking down the hall with my girlfriend, they'd call us lesbians and stuff like that. So there was a lot of. <laughs> There was the Junior League of the KKK in my high school, like, weird stuff. I mean, not like an official Junior League, but like, <laughs> like a few guys that went around calling themselves the Junior League of the KKK. It wasn't, well, see, like, that school-sanctioned or anything. Sounds like a but, softball team. Uh, yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> but, you know, that shows, that shows a level of ambition that I wouldn't have expected. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was odd. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's definitely weird. I, you know, the funny thing is, is, is I, I really, um, you know, having, like I said, a I grew up in Vegas, and I, I consider Las Vegas and, and L.A. my hometowns. And I grew up in parts of Orange County when I was younger. And, you know, I really do think L.A. is a bunch of small towns, some more urban than yeah. others. Um, because I, I grew up going to my friend's family farm on, at the end of Bolsa Chica in Huntington Beach. And, you know, it's like when, when I was young, there still were farms in, in you know, in the valley. Um, I, I've often told people that uh, – that, uh, LA is a collection of small towns. Uh, the difference is the basketball teams don't have to travel as far between games. Um, it's actually kind of what attracted me to LA too. When I, I was living in San Francisco before I came here, and and that was like a little bit too much. I mean, there's parts of San Francisco that I love and I kind of miss now, but but at the time it was like too overwhelming of a, an urban environment for me. And and I had friends that would come visit down here, and there was. You know, L.A. has, like, all the, like, great things about an urban city, but also there's pockets of it that feel like a small town or, or you know, nice, na- like, our neighborhood here is, like, you know, small and and small community and really nice and more relaxed and kind of a, I call it kind of an oasis in the middle of the hellhole that is L.A. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I live in Burbank, which is but, kind of the same thing. Yeah, yeah so... Definitely. The, the, uh, San Francisco is, like, Hyper concentrated. Right? Yeah, the city itself. I mean, I've a lot of my experiences in the is in the suburbs around um, uh, you know, the actual city. But I have a friend, a very close friend, who lives in in the city. And every time I go there, it's totally like there's it's way too much. Yeah, way, I, I come from LA. You know, like it's like a sprawling metropolis, and I go to like little wee San Francisco. It's a little peninsula with yeah. little happy buildings, and I'm just like, no, mm, too much for me. Mm, can't do it. Yeah, when I talk to people from the East Coast, they say L.A. is not a real city because all of L.A. is spread out. But, you know, them being from Boston or New York, yeah, it's a bunch of buildings right on top of each other. Well, the thing about that is I love New York, but New York is, look, there's five boroughs. New York is almost as spread out as L.A. It's like when people think of New York, they think of Manhattan. And it's like, okay, Manhattan is downtown. You know, it's like... I live, I live in, you know, the Bronx, you know, it's like, I live in Queens. It's still, you know, a, a 45 minute train ride into downtown. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's just a matter of people's perspective on it. But I, 
I I can see advantages in living in most places except for the most dirt poor horrifying places. Right. And I've lived in some really nice horrifying dirt dirt poor places. <laughs> like Happy Camp was kind of awesome. We'll have to talk about that at length at some point, but yes. not, not today. <laughs> but um, but yeah, you know there are some really interesting parts of this country, and and um, the small town. Uh, my my ex wife is from a small town in. in Western New York State. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's kind of a similar. How how big is Paris? Uh, when I was there, growing up, it was right around twenty thousand. I think it's. I think it's a little bigger now, but right. I'm not sure. So it's comparable. Like I, I think it's more comparable. Than like places I've lived, like Ely and Nevada and things like that. But yeah, the, that size of, is 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 big enough to be have some interesting stuff going on. And, yeah, but not so um, big as to be horribly complicated. <laughs> You went from Paris to Tulsa, you got your degree, mm-hmm. did you do the teaching right after and then go to San Francisco for the Art Institute? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've spent a year teaching while applying to grad schools in, in Tulsa, and then and then I moved to San Francisco when I got accepted to the San Francisco Art Institute. Your experiences at the Art Institute helped influence some of the works that later became The Blot? Um, in a sense, I, well, I mean, I think what happened was I went to art school to study painting uh, and I was going into the art school, like feeling, you know, thinking like, I'm going to be the next Jean-Michel Basquiat. I was like obsessed with Basquiat and like, you know, that whole, like that, that movie had recently come out and I was like really caught up in that idea of like, you know, the romantic idea of being like, you know, a New York art star or something like that. So I went into art school feeling that way and then very quickly became extremely disillusioned by the art world and uh, eventually kind of through studying like a lot of art history while I was there, I kind of found my way back to uh, finding a renewed interest in comics and um, which kind of happened through like studying. I was reading a biography of Philip Guston and uh, he was inspired by a lot of comics too, and so and uh, so it kind of brought me back to and and at the same time while I was there, I discovered for the first time like alternative and underground comics like Robert Crumb and like in more recent stuff like Dan Klaus or Charles Burns and Renee French and and uh, whereas growing up in Texas and Oklahoma, all I'd ever read was like Spider Man and stuff. So so I realized once I saw like alternative and underground comics, I realized you could do something other than superheroes with comics, and I got more interested in that. So I started doing paintings that were based on my ideas about comics, and that got me through art school. And I published my first comic book that year too. And then, yeah, so kind of sent me towards the path where I am now. What was the what was the thing that probably killed your joy the most? I guess for wanting to be the next Basquiat. <laughs> I. I, I um, I, I find this really. My, my my wife has a degree from RISD in photography, and mm-hmm. she does not practice her art. So um, we've had some. Conversations it wasn't any. About I can't really point to any specific thing. I think it was just kind of like a lot of a series of disillusioning moments from day one of orientation, having every student I met tell me that painting is dead, and why would you ever want to make a painting? when I was going to school, had gone to the school just to learn how to be a better painter. <laughs> and, you know, to, you know, just, like, having an experience of, like, being around, like, and seeing how the gallery system works and not really liking, uh, learning more about how, you know, the, that system is kind of set up as, like, art as commodity and, and it's just kind of very... The business of it. Yeah, and, 
kind of seeing like how a lot of the a lot of the professors who were working artists kind of viewed how how things worked and and seeing how some of the students were kind of like falling into that model of it just didn't really agree with me it wasn't about like the reasons why i wanted to make art and uh it was more about like it's like it's like almost everybody takes the like wants to be like the andy warhol kind of model of like becoming a art superstar and like the more I got to learn about that, I became disillusioned with that idea of becoming Basquiat and, and realizing what that actually meant and uh, realized that that's not why I wanted to make art and what I wanted to make art for. So um, that's what, that also kind of made me more interested in comics again and uh, and actually made made that the movie Basquiat have a totally different meaning for me too because then i was able to see like all the horrible stuff in that movie about like him becoming a drug addict and it like kind of ruining his life which i was able to somehow gloss over when i was younger and more naive <laughs> <laughs> right right <laughs> say this movie's kind of horrible <laughs> no it doesn't end very well does it <laughs> yeah how did you end up in los angeles uh well uh Three of my best friends from Tulsa moved to Los Angeles right around the time I moved to San Francisco. And uh, I was having kind of a miserable time with the school, with all the disillusionment, and uh, didn't have too many friends in San Francisco at the time. And so I would come down here like once a month to visit them and started to really like uh, L.A. And two of them were working at Disney online uh, internet group. And, uh, right around the time I started to realize, like, I wasn't going to try to move to New York and be Basquiat, started to realize, like, well, my other options are work in an art supply store, teaching, which, part of, due to the disillusionment at the time, I didn't really want to do, and, or try to get a job in commercial arts. So, I talked to my friends, and they, like, introduced me to some people, and I eventually ended up getting a job, uh, doing uh, web animation for Disney Online. And moved down here for that. So it seems like Disney is like like the kind of the nexus for a, a lot of creative people. I know I know a bunch of people who who work for Disney, um, uh, Imagineering, and mm-hmm. in, in various um, uh, you know the various arms of the Disney octopus. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but it seems like it gives it seems like it gives creative types a lot of kind of inroads to make a living here. Yeah, down. if you're not working for for you know, one of the studios per se, you're working for Disney. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's been, uh, so far it's been pretty, pretty good for, uh, I mean, I, I worked there for two years, which was good and bad. I kind of learned quickly that I don't really work very well in a cubicle environment, but I, I made enough context. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's weird. Why do, why did, it's why an is the world thing. set up that way? It's an efficiency <laughs> thing. It seems like on the, on the books, it seems efficient. I yeah. Think is, is the answer. But no one, I can't imagine. The, well, let's put it this way: the person that works well in that environment is not someone I want to share my floor <laughs> space with. And, yeah. and nobody creative works well in that environment, so it doesn't make sense that a place like Disney would put us in that. But I mean, it was also like the internet group, and there weren't that many artists in there. But right, right. You but, were the, uh, the web people, so yeah. You obviously live in Cube Farm. <laughs> we're grown there. I think there's people outside of Los Angeles who don't understand. That when you move here to be an actor or a musician or an illustrator or whatever path in the creative arts you're taking, 
I think people assume that either you come here and you make it big and yay, you, you live in a mansion with a lot of money, or you go home totally shattered. Yeah. I don't think they understand always that there's a, a middle ground where you can still be doing what you love, but at the same time you have to you know show up to it a day job, um, yeah. sometimes tangentially related to what you're doing. I, I think people think it's not. it's like a 30s, it's like a 30s, you know, you're going to be a star, kid. I, you know, you get discovered at, you know, the, the soda fountain in you. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Sure, I think some of that still exists, those two. But, but yeah, but I think most people, at least most of the people I know, are th- that middle road of, like, you're, you know, you may, you're working a job, but you also have some other, like, creative outlet that you're interested in doing, whether it's music or or uh, art or or acting or any of those things. Well, it's an, in, I mean, there's a reason why it's called the entertainment industry. I mean, it is, I mean, this is what, <clears throat> I kind of had this epiphany during the whole uh, uh, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger election recall thing we had a few years back. Um, when everyone, everyone in the country was like, Schwarzenegger, you know, why are they going to elect him? That's crazy time. And, um, and I started thinking about it and it's like, is it, would it be crazy to elect a cattle baron in Montana? Would it be crazy to elect a oil man in Texas? You know, uh, it's, it's, we, California is largely the entertainment industry. I mean, there's a huge amount of money in it and to elect an actor is not nonsensical. It is an industry, you know, there's grunts and. And, and, you know, like Bertie says, it's, it's you know, you, you come here and you may have a day job tangentially. <laughs> you may be doing craft services or you may yeah. be, you know, whatever. But. Some of those people, some of those same people that thought it was crazy or Schwarzenegger totally forget that Reagan was an actor. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. It's like, uh, uh, um, but it, 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 it makes perfect sense when you look at it in terms of, in terms of California is, is you know, a lot of money from entertainment. Mm-hmm. Flows through California, you know. I'm I'm kind of sitting in a room. You guys know each other, um, and you've been neighbors for for a while. How, how long have you guys neighbors? Two years. Yeah, but we didn't really meet until I don't know, like like meet in person until about six or seven months ago, I think, yeah. or maybe a year ago. It's funny because I met Tom. We figure out we're right around the corner from each other. Yeah. So <laughs> that was pretty cool. It's that cliche, you know, big city, small town. I still feel that way about Los Angeles because even yeah, like I said, I you know I grew up here and it's and it's like, um, um, you know, you know, like a friend of mine dated like the same girl as another friend of mine. You know, it's, it's really small town. I mean, it's very much like, you know, well, I went to this high school, I went to Reseda High, I went to Birmingham High, and you know, it's like yeah. we were rivals. It, it's it's really and and when you get into those clicks of music or comedy, it's even more, you know, like everybody knows everybody. Yeah. Or at least you know of people. It's like oh, I've heard of you. I've seen some of your stuff or whatever. It really is like for a place that has millions of people in it. It's like surprisingly tiny. Yeah. It's almost like you know what it is. It's like a video game where there's like thirty important characters and then everybody <laughs> else just sort of wanders around. <laughs> it's like you you can discount that person because he's just wandering around in the background. Right. Yeah, also, as I always say, like, <laughs> some people will say, like, you know, I, I can't stand the people in L.A. or whatever. I'm like, well, it just depends on who you're around. I mean, there's, like, you, like especially get this from, like, friends on the East Coast and stuff or New Yorkers or whatever that just don't, they think that everybody in L.A. is awful. But, like, I don't I don't hang around any actors or any Hollywood people, really. And, well, I mean, you, you, everybody finds their own little pocket of, like, what they like about 
the city or their own neighborhood or whatever. It's so many different different things here. And I think too, um, you you know, you don't have to hang around with people who are you know who are dicks. <laughs> you know, I mean, really, it's like we're all grown ups and we can choose unless our. Unless you're stuck in a cubicle next. Unless time. absolutely, <laughs> yeah. unless yeah. that's that's probably that's pretty much the only. But I mean, in your creative life, it's it's like I and. Um, maybe I have a more finely honed sense of, of, you know, who's a a stand-up human being than others, but, but I I can tell, like, you're somebody that I'm not going to hang around because you're insincere or whatever, or, you know, self-aggrandizing or whatever the problem is, you know, it's like, I just, Hey, how you doing? And you walk away, (laughs) be nice, but, but you can tell the people who are in it for, you know, whatever, and so many of those here, you can. It makes it easier to spot the nice ones. <laughs> yeah, no. In a lot of ways, that's true. In a lot of ways, it's absolutely true. But I think, I think going back to what Brody was saying earlier, you know, I think those are also the people that think that they will walk off the bus, and they'll be by strength of you know their their you know flawless beauty and personality, they're going to be you know doing whatever, whether they're it's acting or yeah. comedy or whatnot. You know, and you can really tell the people who work hard. And have the talent, and you know, those are the people that I want to ride on their coattails. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, 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 that's kind of one of the reasons why I didn't get into creative stuff until much later in my life was seeing people who you know come here and fail and come here and and are are in it for the wrong reasons, um, and it makes it more difficult to kind of. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to be one of those people, and I realized later on that I, you don't have to be. You just do what you do, and you. Your joy yeah. out of what you do. Yeah. I wonder how much of that also, uh, Tom, for for you being involved with musicians to the extent that you are. Mm-hmm. You've done a video for the Muffs. Yep. You've done a comic book for the Melvins. What relation do you see between that ethic, that that DIY ethic or punk rock ethic? For instance, the Blot was self-published. Yeah. How how does one maintain that and um make a name for uh, uh, <laughs> that's something i'm always i'm always trying to figure out actually i'm always thinking about it it's like how to maintain this because i do uh, i do feel very strongly about remaining diy with uh, all of my comics and something i'm even thinking about as far as now that the gallery i was working with closed i've been thinking more about like whether i need a gallery at all anymore and um is that black maria yeah yeah they uh they close suddenly or three months ago um but anyway the uh the most important thing unfortunately is having to have a job and something doing something else uh which is doing the the web animation that i do uh but um you know luckily that allows me the time to work on my own work and and ever since i self-published the blot uh my first graphic novel i the idea of DIY has become a lot more integral to my art as a whole, and um, it's become a, a the process of, of DIY is becoming an extension of like what I want to do as an artist is trying to uh, I don't know just retain a hundred percent of what I want to do with my art and my comics and, and everything, and so um, I don't know it's something I'm trying to figure out all the time, but it, and you know especially lately when with the economy the way it is i've had a lot less freelance work coming in so i'm trying to figure some of that out but that's 
part of that's always I think that I feel like having a job is like doing something else is always kind of a part of doing DIY because I don't really want to compromise uh, my own art in order to get like a bigger publisher or like have a more mainstream audience. I'm not really interested in that. I'm more interested in, in doing my art the way I want to do it. And, uh, but that makes it more difficult. So, <laughs> but, um, I get a lot of, I mean, like what you were saying about like the music scene and stuff, I get a lot of inspiration from, from, you know, seeing how musicians do it. And, and, uh, I've always been, kind of obsessed with music since I was a kid and and always wanted to be around musicians so I've always you know whenever I once I moved to like uh San Francisco and LA I started meeting people that were in bands and getting more involved in in that community and and uh in whatever way I could like doing flyers or or uh like when I did a, a music video for the Muffs a while back and that just happened because uh my best friend from Tulsa ended up marrying Kim Chaddock's little sister. And so we became friends with them and then, uh, offered to do the video for them. And so, um, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, I, I get a lot of inspiration from talking with bands that, and, and seeing how they operate. And like my friends at, uh, Hydrahead records, like the way they're, they're aesthetic for how they approach, uh, the music that they release and how they release it and what they do with those bands is very interesting to me. Or, or my friend Kepi from the Groovy Ghoulies, who is just like a touring monster. He's just always working. And, um, I, which I think if, if people can do that with music, there's gotta be a way to do that with comics. So that's what I'm kind of trying to do. The, the more, the more I see like, uh, in, in specifically the, the comedy scene, that that's, I think that's just the the way of it. I mean, UCB, the Bright Citizens Brigade Theater is essentially Matt Besser and Matt Walsh and Amy Poehler. Um, um, you know, it's their their baby and their DIY. You know, it's like, and now they have a couple campuses in New York. They have one in LA, and I just you know, there's so many uh, um, artists in in you know music and comedy and, and art, actual art art um, that are kind of taking the bull by the horns and, and yeah. I just, yeah, I, I, it's funny that in, in hindsight, how was it ever, I mean, I guess the internet has a huge, uh, you know, way to connect people up with, uh, you know, the things that they like, whether it's music or art. Um, but it seems like so fundamentally, like, why wasn't this done before? <laughs> you know, I, I, I find it hard to, to think of the days where you had to go to a gallery to see a show or. Yeah, um, you know, you, we, we, Brody and I have talked about this before. Uh, um, you know, in order to find new music, you had to like go to a show or trade tapes with somebody, yeah. or whatever. You know? Read Max Rock and Roll, or yeah. Flipside, or something like that. <laughs> you know, and it's it must be really liberating that you essentially, aside from the day job, cube hell part, um, you hold your artistic, you know, guts sort of, you know, in your own control. Yeah, I mean, it is. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it has its ups and downs, but I mean it, at the at the end of the day, yeah, I definitely um, I'm very thankful and like proud of like how I've done it, and I think like uh, starting down the path of self publishing was like the best decision I made in my career so far, and and um, I mean I'm always looking for ways to try and improve that, but it's uh, but yeah, I mean, and yeah, I mean definitely the internet is is 
makes all that easier with the you know promotion and everything. But I mean, people have been doing it for for long in other ways. I mean, there was just the the history of underground comics is like very similar to the history of like you know underground music and punk rock and stuff of like you know trading and and mailing things and then uh yeah i remember i remember like ads in the back of the lampoon for like underground comics like mail order you know yeah we, like kitchen sink comics and stuff like that we had their catalog for years and years and that in the pre-internet days and that was where supposedly I was, robert crumb started off just like pushing around a baby carriage full of his comics that he'd sell to people on the street and you know where he is now but <laughs> right 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 but that's that's he's a rarity <laughs> i mean well right right, right. Because I mean, what you know, that's what that's going on forty years ago. Right? Yeah, at this point. But a lot of what I have to—I mean, what I do too—is I go to, I try to go to like somewhere between six and ten comic conventions a year all over the country, and and that's a big part of of keeping that momentum going and and uh, getting it out there. And that's really the bulk of my sales. I mean, I, I get internet sales, and I have, but I but I don't have a distrib a major distributor. Um. So most of what I do is just doing it myself, going to conventions and going to stores myself and, you know, selling it directly to people, which I really enjoy, you know, because you get to meet some of the people that enjoy your work. And I, I, I think that's, that's a lot of fun. And that's also part of like what I take from watching how the music, my friends in the music industry do that stuff. So, or outside of the music industry. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Can you tell us a little bit about the Melvin's comic you uh yeah that happened because well backtrack a little bit when i did the blot i was having a release party at um secret headquarters comic shop in silver lake and uh the day i was there hanging the show and setting up um aaron turner uh who's the head of hydrahead records and uh singer of isis and other bands um, came in because he shops there regularly and he bought my book and we met and we became friends after that and uh, ironically I was I had been listening to Isis a lot while making the blot so it was it was uh, serendipitous yeah that's the word <laughs> so um, anyway so we became friends and and uh, we're working on some ideas of like what I could do with them and stuff and he came up they were doing this box set for the Melvins and he wanted to come up with a few different ideas of things that could come with the box set that uh, were special items. And he asked me if I'd be interested in doing a comic, and I said, "Of course," because I've always, I've loved, I've loved the Melvins for, I don't know, as long as, since about '93 was the first time I heard them. So uh, was that when Houdini came out? The first album I got was uh, uh, Bullhead. The one with Boris is the first track. So, but anyway, yeah, it was it was kind of. Uh, really amazing opportunity to get to do a Melvin's comic book. But, and, uh, unfortunately I still haven't met them. <laughs> I thought maybe I'd get to meet them in the process, but, but, uh, the closest I got to that was when I asked Aaron if he could get lyrics for me to use as some of the dialogue in the book. And, uh, the email came back from buzz through his wife. Cause I don't think he actually uses email. Uh, that just said, we don't have them written down anywhere. <laughs> so so anyway but yeah i didn't i never i never got a chance to meet them but it was it was uh great to do that book and and it was great for my 
my personal because they they allowed me to do whatever I wanted with the book. They just said, you know, do something that's kind of loosely inspired by the album A Senile Animal. And uh so I just did did my own thing. I kind of took inspiration from the song titles for uh, to come up with the characters because the song titles are like a talking horse and the blood witch and the civilized worm. So I came up with the characters based on those titles and then just kind of wrote a weird surrealistic story that kind of I I feel like kind of works with the rhythm of the the music and uh, and it worked out great. You know, I was able to do like you know a comic that was still you know at least ninety five percent my own kind of idea but still kind of attached to melvin's which brought me a whole new fan base from the the metal scene and, and music scene that i started seeing showing up at, at at conventions people would start coming up looking for that book and then they'd get into some of my other stuff so that was uh so doing a lot of artwork for bands has like really helped grow my own fan base which is like what you were talking about earlier with so and and I continue to keep doing that. Like I just did a album cover for uh, a limited release by ISIS, uh, and and that's really also like kind of broadened my uh, fan base a bit too. As I'm getting a lot of lately, getting a lot more of emails from people trying to get that record because it was a limited release. But but uh, I think I don't know. Doing that has has really helped like grow my career for my personal work. The great thing about the way I've tried to do this is that I usually just seek out bands that I like working with and, and I mean, bands that I like their music and, and luckily that they, they seem to like my artwork. So it tends to, when it, when they like me and I like them, it tends to work out well and it's, it's helping grow my career as, as well as, you know, I get to make artwork for music that I really like. So has it ever been awful? Uh, no, well, there was a while, uh, earlier, like several years ago, I was working with uh, a friend of mine who had a small record label called Tina Side Records, and I, I did a lot of fun stuff with them, but there were a couple of bands that, that were kind of a pain in the ass. <laughs> that, um, but there were, yeah, there were a couple of bands when I was working with that, with Tina Side Records that were kind of prima donnas and didn't really know what they wanted, but they had a lot of demands and so it kind of became a pain in the ass to work with them and that's kind of when i learned that it, it's it's better to like seek out bands that i want to work with rather than just kind of like doing everything for one label because so it's the same kind of uh it was kind of the same trap as being in a day job if you're not picking yeah. who you work with yeah kind of ends up i mean it was i i enjoyed most of the work with tina side but there was occasional problems that and these aren't huge great. bands, right? No, these were like nobodies. I mean, <laughs> the, you know, uh, they were releasing like you know five hundred copies of a CD and like little that's punk, you punk know that, bands that, from uh, Silver Lake. Who, yeah. Speaking as someone who has a you know a, a podcast with zero episodes to his credit, I, I still think that you know some humility. I, I, I'm certainly not going to be like you know going out there and trying to like tell people how to do things you know <laughs> I'm, I'm happy that you're you're sitting down and talking to us you know it's like i can't imagine that kind of hubris i guess there's a lot of i mean that it goes back to like what we were saying about la is like i think there's a lot of people that i don't know i talked to my friend dylan about this recently we were talking about how like a lot of artists think sometimes get so wrapped up in their own egos that they think that 
everything they're doing is going to be like the next big thing. And, but I mean, and you know, that's like me uh, before art school too, like thinking like I'm going to be a huge star. And then the more experience you get and the more uh, disillusioned you get, (laughs) you you start to realize there's like more of a, you, you have to do like more of a steady, slow, humble, more humble kind of success rate and just keep, keep working at it. But you know, these some of the, like one one in particular I, I don't really want to name their name That's but fine. <laughs> but it was uh just you know these they were, I don't even remember how old they were like probably like twenty year old like girl punk band and they they thought they were going to be like huge but there were nobodies so but they tr- they acted as if they were already huge so. I wonder too I wonder too because there's that sort of that undercurrent of you know it's my destiny kind of thing i wonder how much of that is just sort of that bs that's pushed on people you know it's like yeah. if you're gonna make it in this business you're gonna have to you know think highly of yourself and have that motivation kind of behind you and not yeah well and i think i think a lot of people have the the they think that that's how the only way you can do things i mean that's part of what i think a lot about with my own career of like doing the diy thing is like i'm i want i don't have those ambitions to like like i mean that's part of what disillusioned me in art school was like even the teachers were teaching you like you know you either become an art star with big galleries or you stop making art and i was like screw that i'm gonna continue to make art in my own way and i don't have to be a huge art star and i don't have to quit and you know but some people think that there's that's one or the other well i think that's why i mean and maybe it is like you say it's a maturity thing too that you realize that whether you're a musician or a comedian or artist if you put something out there that people respond to you your job is done you know you're like oh hey this you know i made somebody laugh or i made somebody you know come up after and say hey those lyrics were great or you know uh, gush over a comic book or whatever um you know that's it's little victories i guess you mm-hmm. know um which may lead to bigger like you know putting food on the table but but i don't know i mean i I think i need to get my thoughts around some of this (laughs) uh uh because that's just that whole thing is so kind of anathema i mean i I goof around there's a lot of false bravado i have about things but deep down inside i know that it really the only thing that counts is one i'm doing something that i care about and other people if they like it hey they're on board the train let's you know and we're all having a good time. I just that 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 level of and I said hubris before. I think that's appropriate. That level of just like crazy time, like you know, egomaniacal behavior. Just just kind of like yeah. I, I I almost can't even imagine it. You know, I mean, as try as I might, and as much as I goof around on that kind of thing, it's it's hard to get my head around yeah. <laughs> like how you could be that kind of a dick and be on <laughs> like on a tiny label and a nobody band. It's like I. Merch is in the van if anybody wants some. Yeah. <laughs> Would you guys agree that that's what art for art's sake is about? The work, not like the money, the fame, yeah. things like that. And that's true of music. That's true of yeah. going up on stage to do comedy, whether it be an open mic or at the UCB or the iOS. And the same for putting out comic books, doing it as whether it's a... a uh, comic yeah. Doing a you know whether it's doing a mini comic and passing it out at Comic Con or yeah. ending up published. Like yeah, I mean that's that's for me. It's just I just want to I just want to make that stuff. I want to make comics and I want to make art. You know whether 
you know, it ends up hanging on a, a friend's wall or, or I'm only like doing Xerox copies of comics and handing them out to people or, or if I'm doing like a more full fledged publishing book, it's just, but it doesn't matter. Like the end result doesn't really matter as much as for me, like actually making the stuff myself. I mean, that's, that's what's important to me. And, and, uh, but, uh, luckily there are some people that seem to like what I do. So I want to talk about Henry and Glenn forever. Oh, no. Or as I, I keep wanting to call it, I swear to God, I keep wanting to call it, I now pronounce you Henry and Glenn. <laughs> <coughs> now, Maybe that should be the sequel. That won't happen. <laughs> and this is uh, referring to uh, Henry Rollins, who started out in Black Flag, yeah. and more people know probably from Rollins' band than his movie and TV roles. And Glenn Danzig, who was the singer of The Misfits, and then Sam Hain. Um, and then went on to form Danzig. For the listeners, uh, sum up the premise, if you will, of Henry and Glenn Forever. Uh, Well, basically, okay, uh, there's, I have uh, an artist collective, or art fraternity, as we like to call it. My art fraternity, Igloo Tornado, which was just me and three of my friends that started getting together years ago to just look at each other's work and, and, you know, talk about art and help like you know push each other in our careers and motivate each other and and uh get art shows and stuff and we also like to go to bars and drink beer so one one night when we were at a at a bar and had a few beers uh jen stevens one of the members of the igloo tornado had the idea that there should be some kind of Tom of Finland sort of book, but starring Henry Rollins and Glenn Danzig. And, uh, <laughs> Which is a, a fucking brilliant <laughs> idea. That's like one of those things where uh, you hear it and you're like, yeah, yeah. fuck yeah. yeah. That's, that's pretty much the rest of us, me and me and Scott uh, Nobles, we just pretty much said, yeah, we have to make that happen. <laughs> and uh, as we talked about it a little more, we, we, uh, we kind of developed it more into just like the idea of what if, you know, because... They're, they've been those the two real characters have actually been friends since the early 80s and so um yeah so the the idea just more evolved into just like what if they were domestic partners it was all just kind of like alluded to that they might be together or maybe they're just roommates but like Bert uh, and Ernie. yeah <laughs> so uh like yeah the hardcore Bert and Ernie. so we just um <laughs> we just started doing like little one one panel gag comic strips based on that idea and we originally did like a just like a Xerox mini comic zine uh, back in like 2005 that I took to some comic conventions and sold out of them very quickly. Uh, and then so we decided to do a second one, and then we brought Hall and Oates into the mix as their neighbors. Who there's also rumors that they might be actual Satan worshippers. So I wanted to focus on that. <laughs> well, their career <laughs> arc. <laughs> Pretty much points to some sort of pact with the uh, the pact with the devil. Well, it also points to the fact that they write great music. <laughs> I know. I I know. But there's a lot of hollow notes in the zeitgeist lately. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're boycotting Arizona because the immigration bill. Was, I, that's tour. new. That's new. Oh, yeah. that's cool. Sweet. But uh, so then we did a second one, and that one sold out. And I kind of let it die after that because I it wasn't like what any of us really do with our own personal art. It was just kind of this dumb drunk joke that we messed around with. But as I've been going to conventions over the years with my other books, I keep running into people that are like, when are we going to get more Henry and Glenn? And so I finally, like, <laughs> last year I, I pitched it to this guy, Joe Beal, who is the 
uh, was the founder of uh, punk rock publishing house called Microcosm. And he immediately wanted to, he, without hesitation, was like, I want to do this, but probably not going to be Microcosm. We'll do it with my imprint, Cantankerous Titles. And uh, and then, like, as soon as I released the cover image on, on the web, it blew up. Because <laughs> it's, it's fan it's, goddamn tastic. It's now, like, it the biggest really thing is. I've ever done. So it's it's kind of... Bizarre. Yeah, I know you have mixed feelings <laughs> about that. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's great, but it's it's kind of weird to have, we've sold like probably twice as many copies of Henry and Glenn in, in the first month as I've sold of the blot in three years. So yeah. it's a little weird. Uh, but still, I mean, you but, can tell when you jab an exacto knife into an artery. I mean, it's just totally <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I knew it would be popular. I didn't know it would be this big. I mean, it was even like. Apparently it was in Spin Magazine this month, but I haven't oh, seen wow. that. I, I know it's already it may not be, second printing. Yeah, it's just sent off the second printing, um, which we added some new stuff to the second edition. Oh, awesome! Very cool. So, yeah, it's I, I. It is one of those ideas. I like. <laughs> I smacked myself in the head. Yeah, because I read actually read the the review in the LA Weekly. Yeah, um, and I was just like, that was that was the sound of head smackery. Uh, yeah, it was just because I have a, a friend of mine, April Richardson, who's a stand-up comedian, who's a huge Danzig fan, and, and actually, I think there's a picture of her on the web um, uh, dressed as Danzig. Um, <laughs> I did not know that. I don't know April personally, but I know her oh. as um, the girl who made these T-shirts that say "The Ma's Father." It's yes, Morrissey's nickname yeah. yes, yes, written yes. out in the font of the the Godfather movies. Yeah, she's a huge Smiths and Morrissey fan. Huge. I don't know why this girl and I aren't friends. You should be. You know, absolutely. <laughs> no, no, we should hang. I, I, we have I, the same musical taste. Well, we'll I don't know why we didn't put Morrissey in the Henry and Glenn Forever book. <laughs> Dude, there's your sequel. The sequel. There's there's something for uh, now. Pronounce you uh, <laughs> Henry and Glenn. Uh, yeah, I don't know if there's going to be a sequel, but <laughs> uh, everybody keeps asking for it. Yeah, I, I I keep it in your back pocket because I that's. That idea's got legs, kid. <laughs> it does, but I don't know. It's like it's like my my natural tendency is to run away from from things like that because I don't really like the idea of sequels and like I've, I see a lot of artists like they get one hit and then they just continue to repeat themselves right. over and over forever. I don't really. I'm always more interested in doing something different each time. So, but uh, well, if you, you have know, more to if you have more to talk about on maybe that, I could just. Pitch, pitch it as a uh, sitcom somewhere. There you go. <laughs> Hall Notes, my satanic neighbors as a as a sitcom. <laughs> I swear there is there's total the Hall Notes resurgence in the zeitgeist. I have no idea. I I, I, I think I noticed it in Dan Harmon did the shorts, the yacht rock shorts for Channel One Hundred One. Yeah, I, th- I think that's when it, I, I I remember like a couple of years ago. I've I've always loved Hollow Notes, and I remember like a couple of years ago, some of my more like hipster in the know friends started like talking about them and gushing about them. I was like, what? Really? I, Everybody I'm, likes Hollow Notes now? I thought it was the only one. Uh, well, I was, was going to say I totally dissed Hollow Notes earlier, and and I'm going to make the confession that I'm I have like the worst taste in music. I have good taste in music. I like good music, but. Like my first album, I don't know if we talked about this before. My first album was um, "Glass Houses" by Billy Joel. That's oh, the first album. one that I actually. It's a great album. It's just you know, I and it's like <laughs> it's a great album. It's like that's that was the first that was the first album that I bought with my own money. I mean, my grandfather had like Columbia record and tape thing, so I would occasionally glom onto something there. But um, but yeah, yeah, it's like I'm I'm okay with the the populist. Yeah, my first album was "Love Gun" by Kiss. Oh, see, that was so much cooler. 
<laughs> well, I had an older brother that kind of convinced me to we'd combine our mm. piggy bank money. Got so it. he kind of <laughs> steered me in the right direction, but right, right, right. <laughs> started me on the right path. When I got married, uh, my mother-in-law made a video collage for the wedding for the beginning of the reception, and the song she used was a Hollow Notes song. I think it's the one that's like, is that like a Dreams Come True song yeah. or something? You, you make, make my dreams come true. Ooh, 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 yep. That was it. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> it, it, they, they're, well, we, we just took this road trip to Northern California, and um, we got this like totally cush Buick Enclave with satellite radio, and it never had satellite radio. And it's like we listened to First Wave and 80s on 8, you know, and it was, and 80s on 8 is all like pop. I mean, it's all like you're, you runs the gamut from the Hall and Oates 80 stuff to like, you know, Prince and things like that. But yeah. there was a lot of that stuff. And I was like, this is, I've forgotten how good this is. <laughs> I, it's crap and it's great. <laughs> you know? have, you, have you seen the, uh, I, I fell for it. I've, I actually ordered something from uh, Time Life from an infomercial for the first time a couple of years ago. And I saw, have you seen the infomercial for the soft rock classics collection? No. I have not. It's an amazing infomercial hosted by air supply, but they're just like, <gasps> they're hanging out in this like beautiful villa, like talking about <laughs> soft rock classics from the seventies. And it's, I was, I was just like, it was like 3am. I was looking at the channels and I saw that and I was just transfixed. I was just, this is so amazing. <laughs> and I, at the time, I didn't even know, it, they didn't say who it was. I was just watching, and I, I didn't realize that was Air Supply. And, uh, but, yeah, and I, so, of course, I ordered it the next day. It's like 11 CDs or maybe 20. It's like 10 wow. CDs with, like, double discs. Anyway, yeah, so I ordered that. And then when my wife and I took a road trip up to Northern California last year, and that's all we listened to the whole way. <laughs> uh. And it's crazy how you can do that. You could listen to 20 discs of that. Yeah. You could do that. It's it's not like you're going to get tired around disc 15 because it's all... It's all... In the whole thing, there's only two songs that I can't stand. Oh, what are the two songs? Uh, Kokomo by the Beach Boys. Oh, dude. All right. I'm down. And uh, <laughs> and the... Uh, I forget who it is. It's, it's that Black Velvet song. I want to make sure this gets on tape. Kokomo is one of the most vile songs ever written. Yeah. It's 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 horrible. Actually, in eight, when that song came out, I remember me and my friend Kevin Woodruff, whenever they played at the school dance, we would run around the room screaming as loud <laughs> as we could. Like... <sighs> I don't think, you know, thinking about it now, it makes me feel like my bones are turning to water. <laughs> it makes me feel, seriously. Well, there's, uh, the only other close, the only other thing that's close to that is when I worked at Vaughn's, we had this promotion, as a box boy, we had this promotion, you know, the greatest hits of the 50s on, on cassette or whatever, and they had playing on a loop, like the first 15 seconds of like a bunch of different 50 songs, and some of those are great songs, but it was totally like, you know, it was like a clockwork orange, like after about a month of that. And the promotion lasted like all summer. It was like the summer of the 50s or whatever. And by like, like month two of the summer, we were about ready to destroy that. But it was like, it was like, it was obscure. It was like Chantilly Lace by the Big Bopper and um, um, uh, Rubber Ball and like <laughs> a bunch of like weird, it wasn't like, you know, like they obviously didn't get like, you know, you know. Blueberry Hill by Fats Domino or anything like cool. It was all like the sort of like second tier, third tier. (laughs) Those are probably the only songs that are just like, 
Yeah. But only because I was, I, I, if, if I'd have heard them once, I'd be like, yeah, hey, that's a kind of cool song. But, you know, every day. Yeah. <laughs> Kokomo, I just, it was like, you know, a shellfish allergy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's completely vile. For me, and it was in junior high, there was a jukebox in the school cafeteria. And there was some good stuff on there. But there was this group of girls who every day would play American Pie. Uh, and I just have grown not, to loathe that song. And not, yeah, and, and not like that song that isn't song like too. 45 minutes long. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> would they put like you know two quarters in and play it twice for yeah, the exactly. entire lunch period? <laughs> Ugh, yeah. And to this day, if it comes on the radio, I just start going to like the convulsions. <laughs> Love Shack by the B-52s was like that for Really? I still enjoy that song. Well, it's only and it's only because I was going through a bad breakup at the time and mm-hmm. and I, I was hanging out with friends, including my ex girlfriend, who was like uh, you know, talking about how she made out with some dude to that song. Yeah. yeah, it was horrible. It was totally like it was like absolutely like one of the most mortifying experiences <laughs> of my life. And and it and that is and you know, that was of course it was being re- reinforced, being played in the background. I think oh, I'd rather make out to yeah. I think I'd rather make out to Rock Lobster. Well, obviously, I would <laughs> at this point. <laughs> I used to be this. Uh, I used to in Tulsa. My friends and I used to hang out at this pool hall called Sharky's, and they had a jukebox that was full of mostly crap. But they had, I guess, because the movie had come out recently, for some reason they had the kids soundtrack on there. <laughs> and there's there's one song by Slint on there that's like twelve minutes long. And every time <laughs> I went it, we went in there, I would I would play that. And after like a month or two, they took that CD out of there. <laughs> I got sick of me. <laughs> Tired of you coming in playing that song. Twelve minutes of slint doesn't go over well in Tulsa, Oklahoma. There's some weird stuff in Tulsa. Tulsa's on on a jukebox in in like a pizza parlor. I, mean, I was thinking either a pizza parlor or a coney place. We eat a lot of coney dogs in Tulsa. Um, um, I'm sorry, I don't know what that is. Oh, really? Um, uh, it's, it, it's a thing in in Tulsa. I don't know if it's is it in Texas too. They have conies in Texas. I'm not sure. Coney dogs are like um, uh, chili hot dogs. Oh, okay. It's like a hot dog chili sauce. Um, I, I didn't know whether it's you know regional or, or just local there, but um, uh, um, songs off of like off the wall, off Pink Floyd's "The Wall" <laughs> in like this place, and I uh, that's where I um, um, I first heard uh, uh, another brick in the wall, and so and at that point I was like ditching school on a regular basis. <laughs> Um, just because I hated it so much. And so I would play that like over and over again. <laughs> that and King Tut by Steve Martin. <laughs> it's like the weirdest guy. I think that probably bookends my entire formative adolescent yeah. years. <laughs> is like King Tut and, and another brick in the wall. Wow. Yeah. Knowing you, that does seem perfect. It, it does, doesn't it? I just, I just thought about that. <laughs> that's, that's the first time I've kind of put that two and two together. <laughs> uh, I wanted to talk about Igloo Tornado, and, and you kind of mentioned that it helped, you know, kind of jumpstart things in your career, and, and having your friends, you know, to kind of bounce ideas off of resulted in you know, this, you know, <laughs> I seriously want to call it, I now pronounce you, Henry, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, uh, along with the DIY kind of ethic and, and sort of doing art for art's sake, I think that that, how, how much have, has that influenced how you work and how much you work and what you do, um, having sort of that uh, cross. It was it was really good. Uh, 
yeah, I mean, when we, f- when we first started, we were all, like, pretty early in our careers, but, you know, all doing very different stuff. Like, you wouldn't really normally put the four of us in the same room together as artists, but, uh, but I think that was part of the strength of, like, we, we were able to, like, approach it. You know, we all liked each other's artwork and had respect for each other and just, like, being able to, like, kind of push each other in the right direction and, like... And because we're all so different, when none of us were, like, really influential on each other in a bad way or in a negative way. It was just, like, kind of, like, reinforced... Kind of re- helped reinforce our own aesthetics, uh, but in a group where we could help, help <clears throat> push each other to to try new things and and, uh, and not get too stuck in your own head, which I dwell in a lot. <laughs> so... <laughs> being working at home and working on my own stuff all the time so it's uh it's good to like you know and 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 we started like it was about five years after after we were i was out of art school and i think the other guys had been out for a while and and um just kind of like brought back that that idea of like regularly getting together and talking about our work and we've kind of we haven't done it as much in the last years because one of them uh one of us had a kid and uh and uh one of them, one of us lives out on the west side in Santa Monica now, so it's it's harder to get together. But we um, we still try to get together and help each other out. And I've, I've got a one year old, so I'm totally I know the the pleasure of the boat anchor of child <laughs> child stuff as opposed to going to every open mic in L.A. and yeah. driving all over the place. It's like <sighs> yeah, open mics are are, are comedy open mics are brutal. I mean, I guess you as an artist, it's probably a lot easier because it's essentially, it's passive. You do your job and it gets printed or you, and then you go to a show and then, you you know, it's like, you know, you're going to go to a comic con and you have all your books ready and you just have to meet and greet. Whereas I think that the, at least, you know, Brody, you, you have the luxury if you're booking a show, you know, it's going to be there, but open mics are just like, I mean, you do open mics for the LA. Yeah, I've done some open mics in LA. It's just brutal. Yeah. 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 Well, being spoiled in Phoenix... First going to an open mic and getting to do 15 minutes, and then at one point hosting the open mic. Right, right. And I'd play every once in a while when there was a gap, you know, or... Well, like, somebody sets up, maybe, or whatever. Right, right, right. It was like a three-hour event. I'd play, like, the beginning of every hour. But, yeah, now you, you hustle to get, like, three minutes to do one song. The, the worst that I ever had was at, at an open mic that's now defunct. Um, they tried, and, and I mean, I, I guess the... The idea was nice, but they tried to make sure everybody got some stage time. So they had an hour before the book show began. So if 30 people showed up, you got two minutes. If 40 people showed up, they, you know, they chopped the time down, you know, commensurate. If, if, if they had had 60 people sign up, everybody would get a minute. I literally went up on stage and basically said, hi, I'm Gene George. Told a joke, got the light, said, thank you, that's my time. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you can't work out material. You can't do anything with that. It's just like, you know, so crazy restricted yeah but um tom didn't you perform recently like at a silver lake jubilee oh yeah we uh we did a um a reading sort of event uh where we project the comic the artwork from the comics on a screen and and then the artist reads the the dialogue boxes and uh would you six of us and I, i did the uh i did the first chapter of the blot which has no words so i uh, <clears throat> played some music that I composed um, to, that goes along with it. So as a soundtrack, and just flip through the 
the images set to the music. So your music project's called Self Indulgent Werewolf. Okay, yeah, is this what you were playing for the blot? Yeah, there, there's the first song on that album is this uh, banjo song I did. It's actually it's got like thirty. It's one uh, melody that builds until there's like thirty banjos layered on top of each other, and it becomes like this really abstract, awful banjo noise. Cacophony. Yeah. <laughs> sound of banjos and a lot of people really hate the sound of banjos so i wanted to make it as as painful for those people (laughs) as i could banjos um, and bagpipes are like the most divisive instruments i think yeah Um, maybe ocarinas too (laughs) (laughs) there was this power violence band spaz from san francisco or berkeley i think um i i saw them play at, at at gilman anyway um yeah they had a couple of songs i mean Hardcore, you know, power violence. Yeah. I don't know if you're you're familiar with that. No, tell me about it. How would you describe power violence? It's like, it's just like extreme hardcore. Yeah. No. And so. It's, I I think that the name is sort of self-explanatory. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. (laughs) So if you can imagine that, and with a little banjo interlude. Just to to cleanse the palate. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So you used, uh, this is some banjo music, um, this self-indulgent werewolf track. Yeah. Played at the Overlay Jubilee event. Yeah, orig- I mean, originally the uh, I did the album because for the uh, my a solo art show I did at Black Maria Gallery in 2007, I was, uh, I mean, I've always enjoyed, like, playing around with instruments and music, but I'm not really much of a musician. I just like to experiment. Um, but I had the idea, like, why not? You know, I want, the whole idea of the art show, which was called Self-Indulgent Werewolf, was I was like, well, I've got this solo show i'm gonna be as self-indulgent as i can <laughs> as like why not also record an album and make that the soundtrack to the show so i did that and uh and made actually pressed a vinyl 130 copies of of a vinyl lp with that name so it's got five songs one of them's like 23 minutes long and it's like mostly noisy ambient stuff with some banjos mixed in but <laughs> Yeah. Just to keep the banjo it's, haters on their toes. Yeah, no, it's 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 not an album for many people. So, which, which I've found in trying to sell it, it's I've sold maybe but hey, twenty you, copies. You but, know, but the self indulgent part. Yeah, I mean Absolutely. that was the idea. It was it was fun, but I have actually, you know, some people have actually enjoyed it. I don't think my wife's even heard it though. She won't even sit through it. I'm really interested in the symbolism of the wolf. I know because of not only the self indulgent werewolf. Um, project, but you're doing something with Aaron from Hydra Head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on my next graphic novel is called The Wolf, and it's sort of a surrealistic uh, werewolf story. Um, and Aaron Turner is doing a composing a soundtrack to the book uh, with his, I think, under the name of his solo project, House of Low Culture. So it's going to be, it's it's all written by him, mostly performed by him, but I think his wife is going to be playing on it, and maybe some other people will be playing instruments on it. But, um, yeah, it should be really interesting. I'm really excited about it. I think the book is, like, some of the best work I've done, um, and I really like some of what I've heard of the music. So, so hopefully uh, we'll get that out. 
eventually. I'm almost done with the, uh, the artwork, and then he's going to finish. He's on tour right now with Isis, their final tour, and then he's going to finish up our music after that. So, yeah. Very cool. And what is it about the wolf that you like? I don't know. Well, it, it's funny, because I've always been a big uh, horror movie geek, at, but I've never... There's very few good werewolf movies. I've never really cared that much. I mean, the werewolf was never, like, my favorite, like, monster character or anything. The law changed But it just kind of... Yeah, or any... any, I mean, there's a few good... A handful of good ones, um... But, uh... American Werewolf in London. Yeah, that one's great, and... The howlings were horrible. (laughs) Did you ever see... The wolf said, no, not... The howling was okay. they, They did too many of them, but... Was it, um... Wolfen was the one that was was shot from the point of view of the was that the one that was or is I kind of like Wolfen actually it's it's got a, a Edward James Olmos right was that Albert Finney or Edward James Olmos am I thinking I might be confusing the two I might be confusing the Howling and which was the one that Maybe had I'm Albert confusing Finney confusing them two actually I can look it up yeah look <laughs> that up because one of them I, I know one of them was I saw it when I was a kid and I thought it was cool then and it came on like HBO or something and I mm-hmm. tried to watch it and it was Wolfen. With Albert Finney? Yeah. Then it was Wolfen. Okay. Wolfen, I think, is the one that shot... Howling is the one with uh, Edward James Olmos. I actually like the first one a lot. But But yeah, I think the... the, Did they make more than one Wolfen, or there's only one? I think it's just one. Because Wolfen, I think, is the one where it's... it's, There's a werewolf in New York City, right? And it's like like in the Bronx, when the Bronx was, like, really filthy. That's the Albert Finney one, yeah. 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 But it was all shot, like, POV from the wolf. Yeah. And it's it's a Staten Island actually. Was it Staten Island? It's the Bronx, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, but that I know it was great. back in the day when it was like things were like really rotten. Yeah, grody like, buildings everywhere and destruction. And the Fort Apache, the Bronx, style <laughs> big. But the point, of, I, 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 but I remember seeing it when I was a kid and being like, "This is awesome." And then yeah. I saw it as an adult, and I'm like, "I can't stand this." <laughs> in the post, like Blair Witch, yeah, like, yeah, shaky cam world. Edward James almost was in Wolfen as well. Yeah. Okay. Full okay. frontal nudity of Edward James almost. I I must have blocked <laughs> that out. He actually is the wolf, I think. Oh. If I remember correctly. I must have blocked. Or that one out. of the wolves. <laughs> I'm surprised I don't remember male frontal nudity. Yeah. yeah, I guess he is. I think that might be a a minor spoiler, but yeah. Whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. For those of you who are like planning on keeping pristine your copy of the wolf of Wolfen, <laughs> dude. Have you heard that Shaky Town radio show? <laughs> they fucking totally <laughs> spoiled Wolfen. <laughs> We're gonna boycott this shit. I think they should. As well, but if you want full frontal letter James almost, go get Wolfen. Right. And who doesn't? <laughs> and who doesn't? I'm a Harvey Keitel man. <laughs> if there's gonna be penis in a movie I'm watching, Harvey Keitel. Sure and, and if he's in a movie, there's about a 70% chance he's gonna show his junk. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there was a werewolf TV show, and when I was a kid, I've got that. I've got bootlegs really? of that. I was in a commercial series. for that. You series. were, yeah. Wow. What? What show? Uh, was werewolf. Called... Was it called Werewolf? Yeah. yeah. Was it on NBC? No, it was on Fox. It was like one of Fox's first shows. Yeah. Like oh, 88, wow. 89, maybe yeah. early. Totally don't remember that. And when they were starting out as a network, they did a tour of malls where they would bring, like, they would set up this booth, and you'd go get to see the shows. And right. When right. Walk out. They would videotape you and ask you about your reaction to it. Right, right. That's awesome. So you've seen me as a nine, ten-year-old kid going, it was great. <laughs> of course it was. Because, <laughs> yeah, it was werewolves. 
<laughs> totally don't remember that show. <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah, it was... Um... I must have had a girlfriend. <laughs> if it was 88, 89, I had a girlfriend. So, so I probably didn't... I'm surprised I remember The Simpsons. Yeah. The beginning of The Simpsons. It was Chuck Connors as the main werewolf bad guy. Yeah. Or Zenny. Yeah. Otto Scorsini? Yeah. Really? That's who the character was named after. Oh, wow. Yeah. How you doing? <laughs> um, to- totally no. I, that was not on my radar. Yeah. Did you uh, own all those on VHS? I am uh, bootleg DVDs. Yeah, I found them at a comic convention oh, in yeah. Seattle a couple years ago. Crazy they're, uh, they're, uh, they're interesting. Yeah. <laughs> they're not that. Gr- they don't hold up that well, but there's some pretty cool stuff in them. Lance Legault, something like that, as yeah. a like a U.S. marshal or a sheriff or something <laughs> that was trying to track the main guy down. It was so like it was the fugitive, a, but yeah. with a werewolf. With yeah. like the fugitive is a werewolf. So yeah. it was like the Incredible Hulk, but with a werewolf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like the Hulk make... was the fugitive, yeah, but with gamma rays. Yeah. <laughs> 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 See now, the skeptic in me wants to say that the Gypsy Curse is actually gamma rays. The gypsy curse is, in, you know, is is when they curse you, she exposes you to like plutonium or something. There you go. It causes you to mutate and become a wolf. Uh, there you go. Screw you, magic. There, <laughs> <laughs> I took him down a peg again. You know, I read that um, Kenneth Johnson, who created V, v and also uh, the television series version of Alienation, mm-hmm. I, I believe he was the showrunner for The Incredible Hulk. And huh. his one of his original ideas, which didn't get implemented, was he said, "Green's not the color for the Hulk. Anger is red, so the Incredible Hulk could be red." But they said, "No, nope, he's green in the comics, so we're not going to do that." But since then, now there's been like a Green Hulk and a Gray Hulk and a Red Hulk. Mm-hmm. Smart Hulk was gray, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's uh, like I, the fact that I pulled that. <laughs> I'm like. I'm, like, the least mainstream. Like, I read X-Men. I, I got hooked on X-Men years and years ago and New Mutants. And then I kind of... I, I was I always read, like, I was the kid that my mom would bring back, like, comics from used bookstores. So whatever yeah. collectors didn't want. So I'd, like, read, like, the horror comics that nobody collected. I'd read, like, the Haunted Tank ones, like, combat, like, G.I. Combat. Tank. And so, it's a... <laughs> yeah, but but they were all rejects and like like the off brand like Charlton comics and stuff like that like yeah. all the off yeah. brand stuff. Which is that's, that's some of the best stuff. I know it's me, totally yeah. the best stuff. It's totally the best stuff. Yep. In retrospect, it's like I you know, but I missed all of like the stupid stuff. But yeah, GI Combat, GI yep. Combat. I, that's like House of Mystery, House of Secrets, GI Combat. Those are like the ones like I would go into the stores and then buy those. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like. <laughs> there was something called House of Secrets. I know there's a comic book store called that in yeah. Burbank. Yeah, yeah it's named Mr. after the, the comic book. Yeah. It's an early uh, DC horror comic from the 70s, which was actually the first place Swamp Thing made an appearance. It was in an issue oh, okay. of that. Probably the only, like, I don't know, there are probably some other spinoffs from there, but that was probably the most prominent one. There were, it, was more cro- it was more crossover than spinoff. I mean, they, they always yeah. had, like, people showing up from other books in, in that. But yeah, House of, House, House of Mystery was the good one, and House of Secrets was the bad one, if I remember correctly. And it was like Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were the, the, the hosts, the, hosts. Oh, the yeah. crypt keeper of yeah, the, yeah, those yeah. books. 
Yeah. But, but they were like very watered down compared to like the uh, the old EC horror or the creepies or whatever that were much yeah. more brutal. Yeah, totally. And that's another great thing of Tom's that I own uh, is the collection of your renditions of classic. We were just looking at that. Yeah. Co- uh, classic horror covers. Neely covers comics to give you the creeps. Yep. Um, Which highly highly recommended if you're if you're into all the uh, my first experience with them. With adult horror comics, like you know the creepy the, the stuff they kept, you know, in the with with like the hot rod mags and mm-hmm. and things like that, you know, that wasn't on the the, the squeaky comics rack. Yeah, where I would buy my GI <laughs> GI comics. Yeah. Um, you know, I just just the first time I saw a creepy cover, and I just was completely blown away because my mom's a huge horror fan. Like you know, uh, um, one of the first movies she took me to, and this probably scarred me for life, was um, "Don't Go in the House." <laughs> yeah, um, you know, and um, uh, but but so she was totally down with the you know the, the Fangoria and, and creepy and stuff. Once yeah. I started getting into that, I remember reading Fangoria's at the supermarket while my mom shopped. I would plant myself in the magazine right. section. Yeah, I'd totally read oh, Fangoria. Yeah. Fangoria was great. But I just still I still remember the the first time I saw a creepy cover and and, and picked up an issue I was I was totally hooked. You know, my first exposure to this um, genre was the graphic novel version of the first Creep Show. Oh, yeah. oh, right. I love that movie. Definitely, you know, a tribute to those to the, comics. Yeah. yeah. So one would say like lifted almost exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I mean. It was scary when I was a little kid. Oh yeah, that book. Mm-hmm. And I don't even I don't even know at what age I finally saw the movie, but just even the illustrated version of the Leslie Nielsen segment with the cock. I can hold my breath. Oh, yeah. you know, Leslie Nielsen was the. Oh no, I'm sorry. I can hold my breath a long time, a right. long time. <laughs> right on the beach, that and on the cockroaches. The cockroach segment. one really yeah. freaked me out. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Jordy, the Jordy Verrill, the strange or lonely death of Jordy Verrill, whatever it is. Yeah. That really, the whole, like, uh, just like the, when he shoots himself at the, spoiler alert, <laughs> when he shoots himself at the end and it's all green. Yeah. Oh, those oh. movies are so good. They're great. They're the great. I mean, I, I, got, cake. I, got, yeah. I got chills just, like, thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah, that whole, uh, um, it was like John Carpenter's The Thing was... 1980, I think, and Creepshow came out like in '86, something like that. But John Carpenter's The Thing was that was the first movie where I started getting freaked out by like something's taking over your body and you mm-hmm. don't have any control. <laughs> and the thing about oh, the, I just realized this. This is this is something that that I thought of like a year ago, and it took me this long. Um, the scene where um, Wilford Brimley's in the Wilford Brimley's in the shack, and they're like. You know, and Kurt Russell comes up and have you seen Fuchs? And it's not Fuchs. I'm okay now. I want to come inside. It took me like 25 years to realize there's a noose in the background. Yeah. If you look, he, there's a noose made of a bed sheet in the mm-hmm. background. And Wilford Brimley, the character, whatever his character's name is, uh, that he'd hung himself knowing that he was going to turn into a thing. And that was a thing. Uh, yeah. But like literally, I'd, I'd, I'd probably seen that movie like 50 times, you know, in like 12 times in the theater. I'm like, the rest on cable or VHS. Yeah. And it, like, like I said, it took me like 25 years of watching it to realize, <laughs> oh, hey. <laughs> Tom, don't we, there's like a mutual friend I found out we had, uh, Danny, who runs the 
I can smell your brains.com website, which is a horror website. Yeah. How did that come about? He actually uh, contacted me after Henry and Glenn forever started circulating around the on the internet. I guess a lot of people were sending him the links because he's the guy that punched out Danzig famously. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, uh, so he he emailed me and then he wanted to talk to me about it. And, and uh, I, I guess he's writing a book about all the hate mail he's received from Danzig fans over the years <laughs> since that. And uh, You'd think Danzig so. fans would, like, cut and run on that one. <laughs> like, dude, your boy just got punched out. Like, maybe you should just, like, back off of that one. Yeah. I've been wondering if there's going to be any kind of backlash for Henry and Glenn Forever, but so far I haven't seen any any uh, I, negative reactions. I think it's such a winning concept. <laughs> you, even if you're, even if you're, I mean, I, I I like both of the guys. All right, you know, I don't have any problem with them either way. But, yeah, but that idea is just. I, I mean, I think that's that, that might be what part of what saves us is that they're. I mean, I I genuinely do like their music a lot, and there's a lot of stuff in there that references that, and I think people enjoy that. So. But uh, I'm sure there's probably somebody out there that's gonna write me some hate mail at some point. Eventually. I. Uh, but that's a. Uh, have you seen that website yet? I can smell your brains. Yeah, yeah. It's actually not too bad. I, li- I like it. It's yeah, a lot of. Uh, being a horror nut myself. I'll check it out. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. The two of the very first movies I ever remember seeing are Poltergeist and mm-hmm. a Drive-In. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a memory. Of that, I don't know why my parents would have taken me to that at such a young age, but I, yet I remember seeing it. Yeah, our, we, our whole family would see that in the theaters. Yeah, and, uh, it was this when I was living in Vegas, and we lived across the street from um, the, the movie theater right across the street. Well, actually, there were two movie theaters. There's one this way, and one 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 of the one of the left, one of the right, and um, uh, like a two back in the day where there was like a two screen movie theater, like a three screen over here, and. Poltergeist was playing, and I probably saw, I probably watched it, because there was like three movies, and that was the only cool movie. I probably saw Poltergeist like eight times in the movie <laughs> <Yeah>. theater. <laughs> so I, remember, I still remember, I have this vague memory of the first time I saw a horror movie, and I, was, I must have been like two or three years old. And I remember, for some reason, my mom, I guess she was out of town or not at home or something. My dad was like watching HBO. And I came in the room, and I was like, what are you watching? And he was like, I'm watching a scary movie. Do you want to watch some of it? And I remember sitting on his lap and seeing this woman get beheaded. And I, for years, I thought it was like a scene from Friday the 13th, because I was right around that time, and and I was aware of it. But I found out later, in high school, I was, I was always scouring all the video stores for all the weirdest horror movies I could find. And, and one of the nice things about growing up in place like Paris, Texas, is they get a lot of the weirdest B-rate movies in their in their video stores. So, and I, I eventually I found the movie. It was it's called Three on a Meat Hook, and it's uh, directed by William Girdler, I think is his name. He also directed uh, Grizzly, which is a little bit more famous. But uh, it's just like really, I think it's a really great movie. But it's like totally like B or D or F grade. <laughs> Like, the local video store was like the movies, yeah. but it, it's, king of that place. It's so good, and it's, it's got this, and I didn't realize it, and I was scouring for video, movies in high school, and I found this movie three, called Three on a Meat Hook, and I watched watched it with my friends, and there's a, I saw that scene where, like, this distinct memory of this, just a woman standing in front of, like, one of those, like, 70s wood-paneled walls, and an axe comes in and just gets, gets her in the neck, 
and her body falls away and the head stays propped up on top of the axe. <laughs> and that was that was the memory I had from when I was like two or three years old. Wow. Burned in my brain yeah. forever. And then I finally found it. And then I recently, like six months ago, somebody put it out on DVD and I just found it again. So Very cool. I'm like, hey, I have my, my life is complete now. <laughs> and the circle, three and the circle is complete. <laughs> um, the other one for me was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I oh, see. Yeah. I never saw that. Oh, Which is really funny. Still never it, seen it. It still um, holds up, I think. It's uh, one of the best I, I, movies. You know, ever. I've probably seen it in clips. I've probably seen most of it. And I've certainly seen all of the grody parts, you yeah. know, in clip shows and various, you know. It's so good. Yeah. I mean, I actually think, like, a lot of the, especially in the 70s, like, a lot of horror movies were more like, that was, I, I think of them as, like, art films because they were just, like, so. A lot of them were, like, off the radar, B, B grade movies that were just, like, the directors were able to do what they wanted to. And, like, that movie is, like, really, I mean, cinematically, I think it's really beautiful and amazing and really bizarre. Well, and then his second, his, the movie he did after that, Toby Hooper, uh, uh, Eaten Alive. Okay. I've just watched it recently. Like, I watched it three times in a row. It's so good. It's, like, this really bizarre, very brutal uh, movie about a guy who kills people and feeds them to his alligator. But it's such a beautiful movie to look at like the colors and the cinematography are unlike anything else but anyway i don't know i could go on and on about this stuff forever. well i think I, it's I, I love i love that stuff the 70s were that time where you know like scorsese and people like that were making movies that weren't aesthetically dissimilar to texas chainsaw massacre yeah. i mean in terms of how they filmed it in cinematography i mean there's it seemed like that they they were much closer you know, in terms of gritty storytelling, you know, it's like they were only like, you know, a couple of decapitations away from a taxi drivers, not too far off of a horror film. Yeah. I mean, it's a psychological horror film. It's yeah. anything, you know, so there was, I, I just saw a documentary. You can get it from the, if you have the Netflix instant view on your computer or like through a Wii, Wii. They, <laughs> they have a documentary called snuff films oh. and it's all about not only, whether or not real snuff films exist, um, and also how like war coverage and crime coverage on TV kind of falls in that category sometimes. Yeah, mm-hmm. lurid tales for yeah consumption. Uh, but also how horror movies influenced that in Texas Chainsaw Massacre recently. And I actually just thought of there was a porn star in Van Nuys who just went nuts and killed a couple of people with a sword, yeah. a machete or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and his death was on the news like they showed him uh struggling with cops and falling off the cliff yeah really i did he fell off a cliff <laughs> yeah 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 maybe he's not dead maybe this is like this is the cliff <laughs> there's there's i i heard a story and i'm not sure how true this is or legendary but apparently there's have you ever heard of the guinea pig series it's these Japanese uh, fake snuff films that I don't recommend ever watching. <laughs> well, actually, um, don't ever watch the first two. Apparently, like, later in the series, they became, like, something weird, more like Twilight Zone, like there's one about a mermaid or something. But the first one, which I couldn't even get through, is just, like, a man stalks a woman, kidnaps her, and then piece by piece, starting with her toenails, dismembers her entire body over the course of, like, two hours or something. It's, really like, horrible. It's, like, and it's really graphic and brutal. So it's, like, an Andy brutal. Warhol snuff it's, film. It's, 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 like, it's trying to be, like, a real snuff film, but it's, it's like, a little too real. It was too realistic for me. It was, like, kind of the early days of, like, the, you know, torture porn stuff we have now, like, Saw. 
but I don't recommend seeing it. But the the funny thing about it is apparently I heard a, a, the story that apparently uh, Sean Penn, who's kind of notorious for not having any kind of sense of humor, <laughs> saw like that was playing at a party at some at some Hollywood party or something. He saw it. And that's when he started his campaign against snuff films in the 90s. Like, there was this big, like, Hollywood against snuff campaign. And it, it all started because of a fake snuff film right? Called, from the guinea pig <laughs> I, series. I, I, I didn't know that was the, that was the movie, but I, I did hear that same, <laughs> that same thing. That, I think in this age of the internet, if there really was a snuff film out there, I think it would be on the internet. Someone would have uploaded it somewhere. Yeah. Or at least, you know, I... I yeah, they might be out there. I'm not looking for them, though. <laughs> well, the closest thing, I mean, because I, I think when that whole snuff film thing came up, maybe it was a link off of um, Straight Dope or something. Uh-huh. Um, for those of you not acquainted with the Straight Dope, it's, it's uh, um, you know, uh, like, they, they answer questions about, you know, trivia, things like, exactly like, do snuff films exist? Kind of like the proto Mythbusters. Okay, yeah. or like uh, a Snopes.com. Yeah, kind of like Snopes, but a, but a little more talky. And they've uh, the guy uh, uh, Ed Zotti's published a couple books that are you know, but they talk about stuff. But um, they they think that those dudes that killed a bunch of people up in Vancouver might have made tapes of that. Hmm. Uh, yeah, totally grody. I mean, it's yeah. like you know, Ugh. as someone who's who's lived with a lot of horror stuff, you know, fake horror stuff when it gets real, like yeah, there's that line and it's not. Yeah, no, I, don't, I don't get into the stuff that's just purely like sadistic gore. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I love like really gory movies, but I mean, like Dead Alive is one of my oh yeah movies. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it is. But it's uh, but it's not. I don't know. It's well, there's from, like, I, I don't like the Saw movies. I don't really have any interest in Human Centipede. I don't really. If the movie's purpose is to like make you barf, I don't really care to watch it. <laughs> that's the thing is, I, yeah, I was, it's funny because I was just talking about Human Centipede with a friend of mine, and um, it's. I sort of, you know, I went, oh, I see what you're trying to do here. And there have been movies that there have been movies that kind of do have done that or tried to hit that note. Mm-hmm. And maybe not exactly like you know, a, you know, ass to mouth kind of note, but but uh, that sort of, you know. But I watched the trailer and I'm like, all right, I don't need to watch you know 120 minutes of this yeah. to get. You know, he's a crazy dude. And he wants to do a crazy thing that's horrible and disgusting. Yeah. Hey, look at that. Done and done. If I want to see somebody eat shit, I'd rather watch Pink Flamingos again. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. So you guys were neighbors, and you had uh, you you had your own real life kind of uh, drama here. Yeah. What happened with that? Uh, I mean, I've heard I've heard bits and pieces, but I want to hear the. Yeah, I'll start. Um, so I was home on a Sunday. We were getting ready for our move. Uh, my wife and I, we were packing boxes and stuff, and we hear all these loud bangs. You know. And it's not unusual in this neighborhood for there to be firecrackers and things like that. Or guns. <laughs> well, but then that's what it is. Yeah, it turned out, oh, it's definitely dudes with guns. Because I looked out the window, and there in my front yard was dudes with guns running up. And our door was unlocked, and I, this is a, a recurring nightmare I've had. Where there's imminent danger, and I'm in my house, and I'm rushing to get to the front door and, and lock it. And there's something pushing from the other side. So as soon as I saw the guys with guns, I told my wife to hit the floor, and I rushed to the front door, and I locked it, and I armed our alarm system, and we just hit the ground and waited it out, and uh, I started calling some neighbors of ours to figure out what the hell had just happened, and it turned out that these guys had run by shooting each other, like these two factions, 
the shooting took place like down the street around the corner a little bit and uh my neighbor's house one of one of my neighbors on the street's house had gotten hit with bullets uh they were fine but you know there were bullet holes in their house so i i called tom to, to see if he heard <laughs> and, and that, no i i i was uh listening to my stereo very loud and baking cookies at the time because <laughs> it was a nice sunday so, afternoon i was so, like i'm gonna bake cookies today and listen so, to music really loud so he's at the okay corral and you're like yeah martha stewart so he's like calls me he's like did you hear that and i was like no i didn't hear anything <laughs> and then i went outside and i saw like down the street like all these people like all these cops like had people lined up and in handcuffs and everybody in the neighborhood was wandering around helicopters were buzzing so how many so, how many guys were there they were Arrested like five or six, didn't yeah. they? Yeah, I mean, there was two guys I saw in my yard, and figuring out later, we weren't really in any danger. Did anybody as far get as shot? Them. No, and that's what I figured out later. These two guys were just trying to get away from the other dudes with guns. They were just that's running fine. up to my house in an attempt to find an escape route. Right, got it, got it. They had run. I found out from another neighbor later. They just run past my house and you know around a corner. Right. I mean, this all took place like down a couple streets on our block and. Um, later we all just kind of pieced together the backstory and, and Tom, you, you had seen these guys, um, earlier and other well, yeah, there was, there was like, uh, this one house up the street that's close to that I think was the house that got shot up. Like they had like a two week long yard sale and all these like kind of meth head looking people like milling about for, for a while. And I kept like driving past and, or when I was walking my dog, I was like, who are these like? crazy looking meth heads that have moved into the neighborhood but then you like found out they're like squatters or something or yeah they basically had moved in there was two houses the guy who actually owned the houses had passed away um i think the other guy in the back house was the tenant and he took it upon himself to start renting the front house (laughs) to these meth guys that's at least one of the versions <laughs> of the stories i've heard the other story i've heard is that they just broke in and set up shop yeah so it's hard to say i think i think if you're renting your you know illegally renting your your you know deceased owner's front house you need some plausible deniability yeah <laughs> so i think maybe there's some disinformation being spread yeah <laughs> how did he pass away did they oh i mean he was just like an old guy oh, i think okay. and i think that was all they didn't often yeah, you'd hope not. <laughs> it's like you're living in an episode of Breaking Bad. I know. I know. <laughs> it's such a nice neighborhood, but we have these gang problems, like everywhere in LA, I guess. Well, you know, it's funny because there's I've lived in places in Reno that the, 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 we had a, a shooting that was part of like this big gang war that was like there was like somebody got killed and then there was a shooting. But we we literally our apartment complex there was an apartment complex on one side of the street. And our apartment complex between these two gangs, so you, like our truck got hit with with gunfire, and you know it's it's weird because it's like there's pockets of like bad neighborhood. LA is kind of the same where it's like this is you know it's a nice street, and then there's like a bad house or a yeah. bad block, and yeah, you know Reno was like there were these beautiful like we were like by right by Virginia Lake, and there were these beautiful like. Probably million dollar houses, and then like a you know shitty apartment complex with gang members living in it, and then yeah. ours just kind of you know blue collar, and then a really nice one, and 
it was really hard to tell. You never knew where you were. You know, it's not like I don't shouldn't go into the neighborhood after dark because I'll get mugged. It kind of thing. And yeah. LA is a lot like that. It's like people get mugged over by Bronson by UCB and it's like the Scientology celebrity centers right there. Yeah, it's like yeah. really nice, crazy nice apartments. So how did you, Brody? How did you perform uh, versus your horrible nightmare of constantly not being able to? Oh, I was right on it. I mean, I, I locked the door. Do you and think that prepared you for? I think so. I actually do because as soon as I saw what I perceived to be a threat, I I, I was pretty cool headed about it. I just because they say that that's part of what dreams and nightmares prepare you for. Yeah, you know, and, and that was actually in the snuff film documentary. That was one of the points the one of the pundits, one of the commentators, was making that the reason horror movies are important to our culture is it helps us process the real-life horror that is is so hard to stomach. If you can look at it abstractly or if you can look into it as a a hypothetical scenario and a a work of fiction. I've also read that there's also like an instinct towards wanting to be scared. Like being being scared is part of like being an animal. (laughs) And in most of our like lives, I mean like... Hundred years ago, people actually had like real day to day horrors, like you know, in in their work or or you know, starving to death and all that stuff. I mean, people like third world countries have still have, but like you know, <laughs> us and we Americans have pretty cushy, fear free lives, so we like end up craving things like horror movies. But I think though, you know, and 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 things like like amusement park rides and stuff. Yeah. But but I think that's I think that's just hardwired into us because you know we've had amusement parks for 150 years or so, yeah, or 40 years, and you know pretty much the same things, roller coasters and scary things like that. I think it's just hardwired. Uh, and things like running with the bulls and, and yeah. you know, adrenaline sort of you know. Oh, skydiving and. Well, I'm just talking about even before that. Oh yeah. Back when you know you still could get your arms pulled off in a milling machine on a regular basis, or you know, had a reasonable chance of if you go into the wrong neighborhood getting knifed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know? um, so I think it's funny that you guys, you know, this this like gun battle goes down, and <laughs> you know, you're all like happiness and sunshine. And <laughs> which is, I'm trying to think of which would be more frightening for me, being you know directly sort of involved in it, or just being like after the fact. You know, holy crap, really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how'd you feel? I mean, it's... it's. Uh, well, I mean, I've, I've lived here for five years, and there's been, there's been a lot of that stuff. I mean, just like last summer, somebody got... Two guys shot each other right in front of this liquor store on Fletcher. It's like a block away. I mean, uh, two years ago, somebody got shot right over on Casitas. Um yeah, it's just part of his car. Yeah, sitting waiting for a friend. Yeah, and and like, uh, not long after I moved here, like about six months after I moved into this house, I had a weird moment where at two a.m. somebody starts ringing the doorbell and pounding on on the door, and it woke me up. And I like kind of like walked in. I was like in the hallway, kind of trying to look through the little window on my door to see who it was. And there was like this person who was like very short like pacing back and forth and pounding on the door so i creeped up and like peered peeked mm-hmm. through the window in my door to see who it was but try not to be seen and just as the guy like turned around and started to leave and walk off the porch and i noticed that he was 
it was like a short, bald, uh, I don't know, middle-aged guy, but he didn't have any pants on. <laughs> and he looked totally fucked up on, I don't know what, but probably multiple things. Right. And he stumbled out off my lawn and went to the next house, started banging on their door. And, uh, but I mean, it scared the shit out of me at first until I noticed it's like some drunk dude with no pants. Right, right. But then I called, uh, I called 911, first time in my life. I called 911, it was like, there's somebody trying to get in my house. And they asked me to describe the whole situation. They're like, all right, we'll send out a car. And uh, then an hour later, no no police. And I called back. And they're like, is he still trying to get in your house? He's like, no, he wandered down the street, but he seemed really fucked up. He might be dead in the middle of the road somewhere. And like, can we call off the car, squad car? I'm like, <laughs> Sure. Well, he might be harassing somebody else because he was banging on my neighbor's door, too, and they're not, I don't know if they're home or not. And he was like, can I call off the car? I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. Thanks for protecting and serving us. <laughs> well, if we've and learned anything from, from rap music, 911 is a joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but luckily, I guess when there are actual shots fired, they do show up pretty well, fast. I, I live in Burbank, and like we had an alarm, false alarm in our house, and the cops were there in three minutes. Yeah. But even so, I still wouldn't want to be alone in the house for three minutes with someone with no pants on who's yeah, trying to yeah. kill me. <laughs> there was another weird night, like not long after that, where uh, like somebody like drove a motorcycle, like speeding down the street, and just right in front of the house, like he flipped it, and he like skidded down, like at least fifty yards down the street on his back. And the bike just, like, disintegrated into sure. a million pieces skidding down. And, you know, everybody in the neighborhood woke up and was out, like, looking at it. The guy just, like, got up and, like, wandered off into the into the <laughs> darkness <laughs> and left the bike. And, like, the next morning the bike was still there and a million pieces in the middle of the road. I'm like, what, what the hell is going on? <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird neighborhood. It's, I mean, it's like, there's parts of it that are really nice and quiet and beautiful, but then we, we do have seven, supposedly seven active gangs. Yeah. Who mm-hmm. all have, uh, humorous names. Yeah. Uh, the Toonervilles, and the Rascals, and the Frogtown Boys. In my head, my, in my cartoon-addled brain, I picture them all with, like, three-fingered white gloves, of and course. they run around hitting <laughs> each other with mallets. Of course, except their mallets are guns. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. We should do like an exchange program, guns for mallets. Guns for oh, mallets. that'd be great. <laughs> well, it's all you know. That's that's the thing is is I I think for me I just it, it I don't I don't get scared of that stuff. I get angry. It just it's yeah. just it's so very like middle school writ large pissing on trees kind of thing. It really pisses me off. And matter of fact, when when our car got shot in Reno, um, the. the TV was there, and I totally went on this thing. <laughs> I'm sure they they I, I they, they used part of it on TV, but I, I gave them like like ten minutes of me just like you know railing on them, on gang members who were just shooting each other in my street because it just makes me so angry. It's so stupid. You're, you're like uh, that Ed Norton character in American History X. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I don't like it, but I mean, I don't like to have it around. It makes me fearful, especially like you know, I fear more for my wife than than myself. When she goes out to walk the dog on her own or whatever. But at the same time, there's part of me that's like, well, it's almost like, you know, the same problem we have with, like, we have a family of skunks living in the backyard. 
and it's like you know there's a part of me that's like well they were here before i was and i'm i'm the gentrifier moving into this this neighborhood that used to be a, a you know lower income neighborhood that's being like bought up and so it's like I mean, I don't like being around it and having, but I'm also kind of, there's always a part of me that's like, they were here first and like, you know, as long as they're not like directly affecting me and like attacking my house, then just kind of, yeah, see, this is the more, have to kind of accept it, that it's part of the neighborhood, just like coyotes that come out of, out of, uh, out of, uh. Griffith Park and eat cats, you know. Right. But the coyotes were here first, <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. Well, I think the I think the the um, the mechanics are different here. The the because I'm used to the valley where it's basically like the you know the Latino gangs in the valley like prey on all the illegals. Mm-hmm. They tend to leave like the white folks alone because they know the illegals aren't going to go to the cops. So, you, like, my buddy Dave was living in this house in Van Nuys, and, you know, everybody else would get mugged and, you know, robbed. And as soon as they found out that, you know, it was a white guy living there, they didn't touch his stuff. It was the weirdest thing because they knew there were tons of, like, you know, Guatemalans fresh off the banana boat or whatever yeah. to, you know, roll for their whatever meager incomes. You know, and it was, but it was like totally like brown on brown violence, yeah. you know, and I don't know if it's, you know, I think, I think this is a more well-established sort of, you know, territorial thing yeah. versus the, the way the crime goes down in the valley. Give me all like. I'm more bothered by, James by <laughs> I'm more bothered by meth heads having week long yard sales and yeah. Park, yeah, totally. parking like junky cars on their lawn. And that's totally <laughs> a new thing too. I mean, that's, that's within the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. It's, yeah. Totally weird. <laughs> you can email us at shakytownradio at gmail.com. Leave us a voicemail at 626-66-SHAKE. That's 626-667-4253. You can look at our blog at shakytownradio.tumblr.com. There's also a link to our Facebook page, or if you're on Facebook, do a search for Shakytown Radio Hour. And you can reach us on Twitter at shakytownradio. I want to mention one more horror movie. If you guys remember it. Do you remember a TV movie from 1982 called Don't Go to Sleep? The most famous scene being a possessed girl with a pizza cutter. Does that no. ring a bell? No, but I'm going to go look for it as soon it, as we're done here. <laughs> it was uh, Dennis Weaver, Valerie Harper... Philip and Laura and their two children, Kevin and Mary, move out of Los Angeles to a house up north in the countryside. Their grandmother moves in. They've suffered the tragedy of losing their oldest daughter, Jennifer. Just as they move into their new home, Mary begins hearing the voice of her dead sister under her bed. Then her ghost starts appearing to her, and Jennifer hopes to kill off her family as an act of revenge. Grandma suffers a heart attack from being spooked by Kevin's pet iguana. <laughs> Kevin is thrown off the house roof while retrieving a frisbee, <laughs> and Philip is electrocuted in the bathtub by a radio. Sounds brilliant. Yeah, it, it sounds like a it sounds like a health class like safety video, yeah. <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> Don't leave the iguanas where they can spook old people into heart attacks. <laughs> Always have a spotter when getting, retrieving frisbees off of your roof. But there's a spooky scene with the pizza cutter that I, I really remember. <laughs> it's this crazed little girl with a. How old, like 10 or something? Um, or teenager? I, th- I think like a little girl. Because uh, it would be creepier. But, uh, 
a crazed teenager with a pizza cutter would be like, yeah, whatever, dude. <laughs> An old man with a pizza cutter would be really scary. That could be. You can check out Tom Neely's work at IWillDestroyYou.com. He has a blog there where you can find out more about past and upcoming projects, such as The Blot, Self-Indulgent Werewolf, Henry and Glenn Forever, Your Disease Spread Quick, and The Wolf, a collaboration with Aaron Turner of Hydrahead Records and Isis. You can also see the art collective that Tom is a part of at IglooTornado.com. Well, Tom, we're honored to have you as the guest of episode yeah. one of Shaky Town Radio. Hour. Yeah, absolutely, it's been it's thanks. been a pleasure, absolute pleasure. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So, until next time, I'm Brody Foster Hubbard, and I'm Gene George. Get the fuck out of my house. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>